This morning I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. For years now you have heard me say Matthew and now we are going to 1 Peter. We are going to go through this wonderful epistle because as I said earlier, it has profound relevance to issues within our church body and certainly within our culture. 1 Peter chapter 1. Before we look at the first two verses this morning, I'd like to invite you to think with me. As I was living with these passages, it came to my mind that even in my lifetime, I believe that I have witnessed a phenomenal growth of apostasy in the church of Jesus Christ. The gospel has been so misrepresented by those who name the name of Christ that, quite frankly, it bears little resemblance to the gospel that Jesus preached. Compromise is now pandemic. And unfortunately, I fear that very few Christians have sufficient discernment to see the apostasy that's present and the apostasy that is gaining momentum. From the Christian homeschooling movement to Christian schools, from Bible colleges to to seminaries, compromise and confusion now dominate even Christian education. False gospels now make bestsellers. False teachers attract enormous crowds as they systematically seduce the desperate and the naive with their wide-gate version of the gospel. Churches, therefore, are becoming filled with people that do not know Christ. Our children are now growing up in a world that is utterly dominated by religious deception. And what makes it even more frightening And dangerous is the fact that the greatest threat now comes from within the so-called church rather than outside of it. Many, if not most, Bible schools and seminaries are a far greater threat to authentic Christianity than the cults. Quite frankly, I fear the purpose-driven life movement far more than I do the ACLU or the ideologies of political liberalism. I fear all of the wildly popular movements that are committed to somehow manipulating the people to make superficial commitments to Christ. But never really ask them to count the cost of discipleship. Never really tell them that if you're going to come to Christ, you need to deny yourself and abandon all your past priorities. Coming to Christ may cost you your relationships, It may cost you your self-interests, all of your material goods. It may even cost you your life. But people aren't told that anymore. Very few people are told that the key to eternal life is through repentance. Many people don't even know what that means. We now live in a culture where nominal Christianity is the norm. Just kind of show up for church every now and then, say a few religious things from time to time, but live just like the rest of the world. 
theological compromise is now considered a virtue. And frankly, for the most part, truth is systematically sacrificed on the altar of tolerance. Al Mohler said it very well that many churches, quote, have substituted technology for truth, therapy for theology, and management for ministry. Beloved, I would have to tell you that with all of my heart, I believe that the church is in crisis today. We are drowning in the apostasies of neo-evangelicalism. We are like the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the one that made God vomit. They thought they were rich and wealthy and that they knew everything and they had need of nothing. But God said, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. And therefore, he says that I stand on the outside of the church and I knock wanting to come in. Biblically, what we see is that apostasy inevitably evokes divine judgment for the non-Christians and persecution for true believers. And that is my great fear for the church, for this church and all churches that truly desire to honor Christ in all that we do. And as in the days of Jesus, the greatest source of opposition will come from apostate religious systems that align themselves with pagan political systems. We saw that, did we not, in the life of Jesus, where the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of the religious elite, aligned themselves with the political system of Rome. By the way, this will reach its zenith during the time of the tribulation when the Antichrist and his unparalleled political and economic empire will be aligned with the false ecumenical religious system of the false prophet. That will be a time of great apostasy. It will be marked by unprecedented persecution and martyrdom for the saints that are living in that day and unprecedented suffering for Israel unbelieving Israel until eventually God in his mercy opens their eyes and leads them to a saving knowledge of himself. So folks, where I want to begin this morning is with this understanding that apostasy inevitably leads to persecution. And in these last days, the growing contempt for the truth that we see even in our culture is going to continue to give rise to increased hatred for all who are really committed to the truth. And I believe that the storm clouds are gathering. I'm seeing the clash of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And I'm seeing it in the church, as are many others. Now today, indeed, the persecution in the United States is quite mild. None of us are fearing for our lives, necessarily. Bible-believing Christians are merely tolerated as another fringe group of weirdos in a pluralistic, democratic society. I was listening to a political commentary the other day, and the talk show lady had the question, Is the Mideast crisis a prelude to Armageddon? 
Well, that's a very appropriate question. And this particular pundit had other people come on to, to define such terms as the rapture. They put up on the screen the book of Revelation, showed a few passages, had them define terms like tribulation, Armageddon, and then they had some people on debating the pros and cons of all of it. And clearly the sense that you got from the people that were on there, for the most part, especially the, the host, is that anybody that believes this stuff is really, really delusional. <laughs> and it's hard to believe, but there are people that actually believe this. And see, folks, that is the mood of our day. And as you look at Christians, the persecution today is, again, it's mild. It's things like that. You very seldom see Christians represented on panels or talk shows. Certainly, they're not allowed to hold a political office for the most part. Christians are considered ignorant, kind of religious fanatics. I mean, after all, we deny the theory of evolution, and we actually believe that everything was created. And in fact, I believe that today it is fashionable in our culture to consider Bible-believing fundamental evangelicals as kind of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals that hopefully will someday be converted to the more sophisticated virtues of religious tolerance and moral relativism. After all, that's what's made our nation great. And if not, we just have to gradually consider them as hate mongers. In fact, even now you hear rumblings of how fundamental Christians are being compared to fundamental Islamic terrorists. And so we see an increasing hatred of Christianity. More and more Christians are treated with derision and scorn in our country. And I believe that this is going to escalate because we've seen this all through history. And we also know the prophetic word. Well, this was precisely the dominant mood of the first century. Christians were marginalized, marginalized, and they were considered a, a fringe group of religious fanatics. They were maligned. And after Jesus' ascension that we've been studying as we came to the end of Matthew, much to the chagrin of the Jewish religious authorities, the church exploded in growth, resulting in increased hostilities and persecution. You will recall that they tried to stop Peter and John from preaching. You read about that, for example, in Acts 4. They threw them in jail. They beat them. Of course, they got out and they continued to preach. And soon after that, Stephen was martyred. You remember Saul of Tarsus kind of led the charge. And Satan, during that time, continued to sow tares among the wheat. False prophets began to spring up everywhere within that early church. But the church continued to grow along with the apostate churches. And hostilities grew with every new convert. You will recall that Herod had Peter and James, the brother of John, arrested. Steadily the contempt for Christians grew. And since Christians rejected the state religion of Rome, they were considered to be subversive rebels, insurrectionists. And over time, the result was persecution. In fact, that became eventually the official political position of Rome. 
by the time Peter wrote this epistle to the saints scattered abroad here in Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, the discrimination and the hatred of Christians was inexorably descending into the abyss of inconceivable savagery. It hadn't come completely yet, but it was getting very, very close to that. In fact, the barbaric and insane Emperor Nero was about to unleash his fury against the Lord Jesus Christ and all that follow him. And because of his insatiable appetite, if you remember your history, his appetite to build, he decided that he would glorify himself through new buildings. And so what he had to do is get rid of the old. So he set Rome on fire. And of course, since he needed a scapegoat, the lowest life form on the planet of that day were Christians like us. And so they got the blame. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Christians were blamed not only for the burning of Rome, but for their hatred of the human race. And of course, if you read about Nero, you read of the fiendish tortures that he used against Christians. It was great sport to attach hides of beasts onto Christians and to allow them to be killed by wild dogs while spectators laughed in glee. Thousands of Christians were crucified. He would also dip Christians in wax and burn them alive to illuminate his gardens while he would drive furiously around on a racetrack he had in his gardens on his chariot. Well, dear friends, it was just before all of that that broke loose that both Peter and Paul were martyred. And it was on the precipice of this inconceivable era of persecution that they penned their epistles. Finally, we think through the history, go on a little bit further, just so that you have further context. By the 4th century, the emperor Diocletian tried to utterly destroy Christianity until Constantine came on the scene around 313 A.D. But soon after Constantine, during the Middle Ages, the apostate church evolved into a very well-organized and politically powerful machine called the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church then took up the satanic banner of destroying the gospel of Christ, and it continues to do so to this very day. Millions of Christians were tortured since that time. Certainly during the time of the Inquisition, tens of millions were killed. Some estimate that if you consider the Jesuits and their alliance with communism, that there has been well over 200 million Christians that have been killed since that time. Well, today the persecution continues. Again, it's mild here. It's a little bit worse in the countries of Europe, but it is catastrophic in communist countries as well as Islamic governments where thousands of Christians are killed every year. So, knowing the suffering that was coming upon the saints, the Spirit of God inspired Peter to pen this epistle, preparing thousands of saints for what was coming upon them. And although I do not know the severity of that which awaits us, I do believe that it's going to get worse, much worse, 
I believe that if the Lord tarries ten years from now, we will look back on this day and say, my, how true that is. And I believe we need to be prepared, even as the Lord prepared the saints of that day, and therefore all of us, for the persecution, the inevitable suffering that comes when we follow Christ. And I fear again that as the fires of apostasy intensify, again, Satan knows his days are numbered. I believe that any discerning Christian can smell the smoke of the flames of persecution as they inexorably make their way towards all who love the Lord Jesus Christ and refuse to compromise. So, here's the context. Peter is now at the close of his life. He's writing probably from Rome. Persecution is already there, but it's ready to explode into a much more severe form of barbaric savagery. He is also fully aware, because the Lord has told him, that he is going to be crucified. So what is on his heart? What would be on your heart? What would you say to the saints during that time? What would dominate your thoughts? What would be the theme and purpose of your epistle? Well, the answer is simply this. How to live triumphantly in days of apostasy and mounting persecution. And as we look at 1 Peter, we see that he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, tells us how to maintain a confident and a vibrant faith in the face of suffering. He tells us how to avoid becoming bitter and losing hope in a world that hates you. We will learn about evangelism. Evangelism through obedient, victorious living. He's going to explain the importance of the priesthood of the believer. He's going to help us how to understand how we should live in a world that is governed by secular pagan governments. He's even going to get real practical and spend some time telling us how a Christian lady should conduct herself. And how a believing wife can win her unsaved husband to Christ as well as many other very practical theological issues. But dear friends, the dominant theme is how to live a triumphant life in the face of suffering. And where does he begin? Where would you start? Well, I find it fascinating that he begins with the doctrine of election. The most despised and misunderstood and maligned doctrine in all of Scripture. In fact, it is avoided like the plague in most all pulpits, not just in our country, but around the world. But dear friends, there is no greater comfort in the fires of adversity than to know that you serve a sovereign God that is in control of all things. There is no greater encouragement than knowing that God has ordained even our afflictions for our good and His glory. Why? Because we know that He has even ordained our salvation. And that's where you must begin. And so what an encouragement to be reminded that God deliberately ordained your salvation in eternity past. What a glorious confidence that is for people that are suffering. Thus my sermon title this morning, Election, 
triumphant hope for spiritual aliens. Let's look at the first two verses of Peter's epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. What a powerful salutation. And as we look at this salutation this morning, we will find that it is packed with some glorious truths. And we are going to look at four key elements of our election. Elements that are indispensable when it comes to living a triumphant Christian life in the face of mounting hostilities. We must remember four crucial truths. Number one, that we are chosen Number two, that we are sanctified. Number three, that we are sealed. And number four, that we are blessed. Now, first, notice who he identifies as his readers. Verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, by the way, is one that has been divinely appointed. He is the authorized spokesman for God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus to those who reside as aliens. I love that word, alien. And as we think of it in our culture, we see all kinds of horrible, goofy-looking critters that run around. But actually, in the original language, an alien was simply someone that was a temporary resident or a sojourner, if you will. Uh, a foreigner who is temporarily living in a place that is not his home. A person that's in a place that is very different than his home. He's not a permanent settler. In fact, it has the idea that it is one who has an allegiance or a devotion to another place and longs to be there. Ring any bells? Now, as Christians, we are all aliens. We're like refugees in this world. I've had the privilege of being in some third world countries. I think when I was in Kenya, for example, I was definitely the alien there. There was no cultural identification. The values, the language, for the most part, was radically different. And likewise, as Christians, when we're around Non-Christians, our worldview is a radically different paradigm. They cannot understand us. They think we're crazy. Our unbelieving friends cannot understand us. We are spiritual aliens in this world, citizens of another kingdom. Our home is in heaven. We are not suited to live in this world. We're not even ultimately residents of this earth, but... We're here temporarily. We're sojourners. We're aliens. By the way, real practically, we need to live our lives for the eternal, not for the temporal. Don't invest all of your life in things of this life, in things on this earth. What is important is not this life, but the next. What's important is not what's happening on earth, but what's going to happen in heaven. So therefore, we shouldn't be surprised with how we are treated here in this kingdom of darkness. We need to be 
like Abraham in Hebrews 11:10, who was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And I think of the words of Jesus in John 14, beginning in verse one, he said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. And then he goes on to say, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Dear friends, that should be the preoccupation of our hearts. So very practically, let's don't be obsessed over the wickedness of this world. Let's don't get all consumed with politics and, and live for earthly treasures. We're aliens here. And that's who... Peter is addressing. So in verse one, again, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens. And then he said, scattered. In the original language, it is diaspora. Sometimes you hear it pronounced differently. We get our English word dispersed from that. And it's a reference to the believers who were geographically scattered all over the place, especially here, he says, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Primarily, these were provinces in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So, he's writing to spiritual aliens that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, a region that was exceedingly hostile to them. By the way, it remains that way to this day. And ultimately, of course, the Spirit of God is speaking to all of us who are also aliens scattered all around this world. Then he reminds them of the quintessential doctrinal truth that is crucial for triumphant living in a hostile world. He says in verse 1 here at the end, he said, you who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chosen, the word in the original language, comes from electos. It's translated elect. It's the called out ones. It means to choose or to select. So the first crucial truth that we must concentrate upon as we live in this world of increased apostasy and hostility is, number one, we are chosen. Now, we see this amazing doctrine all through Scripture. And without question, I believe it is the most humbling and comforting doctrine in all of Scripture, making it, by the way, also the most hated. You see, proud man cannot stand a God that acts independently of him. We just don't like that. And quite frankly, divine sovereignty, especially over salvation, assaults man's rabid commitment to self-determination. Moreover, man cannot stand any doctrine that he cannot fully comprehend. And so you see all kinds of mental and exegetical gymnastics created to somehow excuse God from this terrible thing that somehow he would choose some and not everyone and bail him out of this horrible dilemma that in the minds of many would mean that God deliberately chose to send some people to hell. Well, my purpose here today, because I've talked on this much at other times, is not to go through all of the facets of the doctrine of election, but simply to remind you that it is a hated doctrine but it is one that is very clearly taught in Scripture. And certainly it is hard to understand. There is a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility because both are taught in Scripture. It is an inscrutable mystery. 
And you'll never be able to understand it, and I would argue that we cannot understand any of the major doctrines in Scripture. From creation to inspiration, from the Trinity to the Incarnation, it's all a mystery to us. But sovereign election is an undeniable truth. And it's interesting that Peter just mentions it. He doesn't try to defend it. He just mentions it. And that's the way we see it throughout Scripture. It's interesting that the Lord said in John 6:44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And later in chapter 13, verse 18, he differentiated between the elect and the non-elect. And he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we read that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, we read, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, According to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, that the Lord saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. The original language, literally, it's saying before time began. He says the same thing to Titus in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, where Paul described himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. And then later on in verse 2, he tells us that this choosing was promised long ages ago, again, before time began. We see it all through Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. The Spirit of God speaks through the Apostle Paul and describes believers as those he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So friends, please hear this. Scripture is abundantly clear that God took the initiative in our salvation. In eternity past, he sovereignly and he graciously chose certain ones to be saved not based on any foreseen merit or act on the part of that individual. And those whom He chose, which the Bible calls the elect, will certainly be saved, those and no others. And all whom He has chosen are made to be voluntary partakers of Christ's salvation. I want you to notice what Peter says here. Those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, some will be quick to say that election, God's election, yes, we see it all through Scripture, but it's due to divine foreknowledge. Here it says it right here in this verse. Foreknowledge of those whom he sees believing in him in the future. In other words, God looks down the corridors of time and he can see which ones decide on their own, through their own free will, that they're going to believe in Him. And then He sees who those people are, and it's like He writes their names down and then ordains that these people are going to get saved. Proponents of this view argue that man, not God, takes the initiative in salvation. 
that in eternity past, God graciously chose to save those whom he foreknew would respond to, in faith to the gospel of Christ. And they would cite Peter's words here. They would also go to Romans 8.29 where it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now I must confess that when I was a young man, especially when I first went into seminary, this was the view that I held. I hadn't thought it through very well, but I thought that it made sense to me. Later I realized that this is a man-centered definition of foreknowledge. It is not a biblical definition of foreknowledge, and it is utterly contrary to the doctrine of divine sovereignty. I want to give you six reasons why, and I'm sure there are others. I'll go through these rather rapidly because I don't want this to necessarily be the point of what I'm here to share with you this morning. But first of all, when we look at these texts in 1 Peter 1 and Romans 8.29 with respect to the word foreknowledge, there is absolutely no hint as to what God foreknew. We do not see that here in this text. In either of these texts, it is merely conjecture to assume that this refers to some supernatural foresight or foreknowledge of those who would and would not believe. Secondly, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see an affirmation that it is God, not man, who is sovereign over salvation. Again, Jesus told his disciples, for example, in John 15:16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In Romans 9, verse 16, Paul describes salvation and he says that salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Indeed, God is sovereign over all things, including and especially salvation. We read, for example, in Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 9. God says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. But we see a third reason why this concept of foreknowledge cannot mean the idea of just looking and seeing who would and who wouldn't be saved. And it's the very issue of grace. We are saved by grace alone. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You see, we cannot initiate our own salvation and thus share in the glory of our salvation. That frustrates grace. Fourthly, man is spiritually dead. He has no ability to respond to God's gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we read that man is spiritually dead. A corpse cannot respond to anything unless it is somehow revived. Now, people are quick to say, well, what about man's free will? Well, indeed, every man has a free will, but that's not the issue. The issue is his desire. Man has the will to believe in Christ, but he has no desire to do so because he's spiritually dead. He has no desire to exercise that will and be saved. I fed my horses this morning, and they ate a certain type of grain. 
Now, I could have brought them hamburger or horse burgers. Now, they have the will to eat those burgers. They could do that if they chose to. Well, why wouldn't they do that? Because that's not their nature. They have no desire to do that. Any more than fallen man has a desire to give God the glory and confess his sin and repent of his sin and make the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of his life. He has no capacity to respond to truth apart from divine regeneration. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3.11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Therefore, again, dear friends, any definition of foreknowledge that assumes that man can initiate his own salvation and then God elected him on that basis is simply incompatible with the doctrine of man's depravity, not to mention the doctrine of divine sovereignty. A fifth reason, the Old Testament concept of the word to know means to have special regard for or to look upon something with special concern. And indeed, the Greek term used here in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, prognosis, uh, has a meaning far beyond mere knowledge of the future. It has the idea, and you need to catch this, the idea of foreloving. It has the idea of the prior establishment of an intimate relationship with someone. In fact, in the Old Testament, knowing sometimes even refers to sexual intercourse. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Again, the idea of an intimate, foreloving prior established relationship. He told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to all the nations. Again, friends, repeatedly we see this reflected in the language of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if foreknowledge merely referred to an advanced knowledge of some future event, I would have to say that Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23, would be utterly absurd. You will recall that in that text, he's describing the danger of self-deception and that time when people will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as their judge, thinking that they were saved, but they weren't. That time of ultimate rejection. And in that text, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Same words. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, now, of course, he knew who they were in eternity past. But that's not the issue. He's not referring to that. He's saying, I never knew you in the sense that I never set my saving love upon you in eternity past. I never predetermined to have a saving relationship with you. And a sixth reason is that such a definition of foreknowledge would be no encouragement. It would be no encouragement at all to persecuted saints. In other words, if it meant just an awareness of something that's going to happen in the future, 
then Peter was basically having to say to them, boy, folks, hang in there. I know things are tough. But remember, you initiated your salvation, not God. And so it's going to be up to you to persevere to the end. What type of encouragement is that? But rather, what he's saying is, folks, hang in there. Remember, it was God, not you, that initiated your salvation. He is the one that set his love upon you before time began. And because of his sovereign reign over all things, he will strengthen you and he will sustain you and help you to persevere to the end. So indeed, Peter later reminds them of this very thing in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So first, Peter encourages them to live triumphant lives in the face of adversity because they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But not only are we chosen, dear friends, but we are also sanctified. Look again at verse 2. It says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Christ. Sanctify, hagiosmos, get the word holiness from that. It means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be separated from sin to God. Now, if I can digress for a moment, biblically speaking, there are technically three distinguishable phases of sanctification found in Scripture. There is a positional sanctification. And we have that in our justification when we're de delivered from the penalty of sin, where we are declared righteous by God. But there is also progressive sanctification, which is a process of being delivered not from the penalty of sin. We've already got that in our justification, but from the power of sin, you see. And then thirdly, there is perfected sanctification, which is the ultimate consummation of the process of sanctification, where in glory we will be delivered completely from the very presence of sin. But dear friends, all of this begins with regeneration. Regeneration. That's when we are born of the Spirit. And again, that's why Peter is saying here, the sanctifying work of the Spirit you see, our sanctification, our setting apart, begins with regeneration. The Holy Spirit initiates that work in our heart. You might recall in Titus 3 and verse 5, there is a, a description of, of, of the rebirth of the human soul, the human spirit. There it says that He saved us, and it goes on to say, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Palin Genesia. Genesis Born, that's what it means. Palin again, it's the idea of being born again. You're dead, you've got to be born again. How does that happen? You're regenerated by the power of the Spirit of God, and when that happens, you are set apart. You see, regeneration is that instantaneous, supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. That's what it is. And at that point, there is an amazing change that occurs in the human heart. At that moment of salvation, whereby the governing disposition of that person is forever altered. 
as that person is regenerated, born again, and thus, and thus set apart in sanctification, set apart from sin unto God. And when we become a new Christian, we become a new creation in Christ. There is a transformation. We begin to love what God loves and hate what He hates. And we're empowered by that indwelling Spirit of God to obey Christ. When we look at the Scriptures, my friends, we see that the author of regeneration is God. The agent of regeneration is the Holy Spirit. And the instrument of regeneration is the Word of God. But regeneration is merely the initial transforming power that sets into motion our sanctification. And that's what Peter is reminding these dear folks of here in this text. And what a precious reminder it is, especially to beleaguered saints in the first century and all who have followed Christ thereafter, to know that the Holy Spirit of God has set you apart. What enormous encouragement to know, as Paul said in Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. John MacArthur has well said, and I quote, At salvation, the sanctifying work of the Spirit sets believers apart from sin to God, separates them from darkness to light, sets them apart from unbelief to faith, and mercifully separates them from a love of sin and brings them to a love of righteousness. So Peter is reminding these dear folks and all of us that not only are we chosen, but we're sanctified. But thirdly, we are also sealed. Notice what he says. You who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Now earlier we read that great text in Exodus 24. And this is the text to which Peter is now appealing. A powerful Old Testament metaphor. You will remember the story. Moses returns from Mount Sinai and reads the law of God to the people. They agree to obey the law. So Moses builds an altar at the foot of the mountain and he offers burnt offerings and peace offerings of young bulls. And he separates half of the blood into two basins. And one basin is splashed upon the altar. The other basin is splashed upon the people. And now the crimson stain that is on the clothing of those people becomes a tangible, visual reminder of the covenant that they are now making with God. It's mediated here through the sacrifice. The blood on the altar symbolized God's commitment to forgive. And the blood sprinkled on the people symbolized their commitment to obey. And of course, many years later, the blood of Christ made that final atonement for sin. And when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, His blood seals God's covenant of grace upon us. There's so much more that could be said here with respect to the great doctrine of the security of the believer. Dear friends, the blood of Christ seals us for eternity. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 26, as we were reminded earlier as we stood before the Lord's table, the Lord said, this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Peter refers back to that ceremony of consecration, reminding the people that the blood of Jesus has sealed you. It has secured you. There is a glorious covenant here of forgiveness that provides for you a perpetual cleansing of sins. And here again, my friends, is another astounding benefit of our election. And how easy it would have been for those persecuted saints in those days to think that somehow their suffering was a consequence of their own sin, that somehow it was an act of divine judgment upon them. Because after all, they, like us, know that they keep sinning. Not that they want to. That, that, that's not the pattern of our, of our life. And that's certainly not the desire of our heart. But because we remain incarcerated in this unredeemed humanness, we continue to sin. What are we going to do? Oh, praise God, there's no condemnation. We've been sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb. The covenant secures us. The forgiveness goes on. Well, finally, you can live a triumphant Christian life even in the crucible of grace if you remember not only that you've been chosen, sanctified, and sealed, but finally, because of election, you must remember that we are blessed. Notice what he says in the end of verse 2, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Child of God, please hear this. Without grace, there can be no peace. Okay? Without grace, there can be no peace. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word chen for grace has the idea of, of to stoop or to condescend. And in the New Testament, charis, the Greek term, also means to have condescending favor. That's what grace is all about. You see, grace is God's favor to sinners who do not merit His goodness, who cannot earn His goodness, who cannot in any way repay His goodness, and, quite frankly, who of themselves do not even want God's goodness. This is the passion of God's heart for these beleaguered saints and for all of us, expressed here through the pen of the inspired Apostle. You see, He wants all of us to enjoy the benefits that belong to the chosen ones. Whereby the triune God condescends to our lowly estate and lavishes His love upon us. Grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Now, beloved, please understand as we think about the importance of this crucial God-honoring God-exalting doctrine of election. Here's the long and short of it. God has chosen us because we would have never chosen Him. And had He not done so, we would perish in our sins. Apart from sovereign election, man has no hope of being saved. What a humbling truth that is. And therefore, what a source of great blessing Indeed, as Peter says later on in chapter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives what? He gives grace to the humble. And I can think of no greater motivation to praise God and obey Him than knowing that He, on His own initiative, set His love upon me in eternity past. 
These are practical, transforming truths that should resonate in the heart of every believer. And yet, how sad. Most never understand it. They don't know it. They won't apply it. Oh, it's too deep or it's too divisive. But child of God, may I say to you, when, not if, you experience persecution and suffering in your life because you're a spiritual alien, when that happens, I want you to remember, based on this passage, that God has chosen you in eternity past. That He set His love upon you to establish an eternal relationship with you. And I want you to remember that God has also sanctified you through the regenerating and sanctifying, sanctifying power of the Spirit of God that therefore empowers you to obey the Christ that we love. And also remember that God has sealed you by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, promising to forgive your sins until that day comes when it's no longer an issue and we're in glory. And also, finally, that God has blessed you. And here I want to close with another passage of Scripture. In fact, why don't you turn with me in Ephesians 1. This is one of the most beautiful, remarkable watershed passages that describe the blessing of the saints because of our election, because of our position in Christ, because we've been chosen and sealed. Paul says, beginning in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. And in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Dear friends, may I close with this thought. I believe with all my heart that one cannot deny the sovereignty of God over salvation and still claim to glorify and worship Him. For if God is not sovereign, then He is not God. And there can be no greater evidence of His glory than in His sovereign reign over every aspect of His creation. Nor can there be a more profound act of humble worship 
than to praise Him for setting His love upon us simply because He chose to do so. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're humbled by these glorious truths and we find them to be such encouragement to our hearts. We don't know what lies ahead for each of us, but we do know that the persecution is getting worse day by day. And yet, Lord, we joyfully are willing to suffer for Your sake. But thank You that You have given us these truths that gives us stability, that helps us to stand firm even in the fires of great adversity. Lord, what a source of hope we have. As spiritual aliens, what joy is ours because of our election. Lord, I pray that these truths will somehow resonate within our hearts, that we might live triumphant lives in a world that hates us because it hates You. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.